I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I am very keen on this series. And I think that it, it, partly because really it does a series of things very new within the spy genre, completely successfully. It has a tone, or the series has a tone, which I think speaks to a very uh, widespread sense of weariness, exasperation, disgust and even anger that many of us are feeling towards our politicians and governments at the moment, mixed with a very, may I say, sort of British sense of kind of cynical humour. I'm going to go back right to the beginning, uh, Mick, first. I'm going to say uh, Slow Horses came out in 2010, so nine years ago now. So you were obviously writing it for a while before that. You'd written a series of contemporary detective novels before that set in Oxford. What drew you to spy thrillers? I suspect uh, that it was quite a surprising shift, even for you. I, I probably knew I was going to do it before I started. Yeah. I think the previous novels had mostly been about a, a single, uh, about an individual, um, Zoe Bowen. Uh, I wanted to write about a group of people, so that was one of the main drivers for turning to write these particular novels. Um, I had a location because Slough House does actually exist as a building and it's very near where I was working at the time. I used to walk past it twice a day. I'm a very lazy writer. I won't go out of my way to do any research or, or go anywhere to explore anything. If something is right there presented to me then that's what I use because it's, it's um, easier that way. And uh, I wanted to write about failure and you know, boredom and frustration <laughs> and all that sort of thing. I don't quite know where this came from but um, I was at the time let me see, this would have been my sixth novel, uh, and I was not successful. I was published, but I was not successful. Nobody was particularly reading the books. So coming to write about a group of people, uh, and I had, a, I had a day job. I was, uh, as I was uh, in London every day, walking past this place near the Barbican to go to uh, my, my office. So I was coming to write about a group of people who were being prevented from doing what they really wanted to do with their lives, and instead were stuck in an office giving all sorts of boring stuff to do that they didn't particularly want to. And it took me a long time, I mean, literally, it was only a year or so that it occurred to me that this did kind of describe my own situation <laughs> at the time. And I wanted to write about spies because I was writing thrillers and really the options are fairly limited. Uh, I could have written about police officers, 
But then I would have had to know what I was talking about because the activities and processes and procedures of police officers are, are publicly available. And if you start writing about them and get any of that stuff wrong, you will get emails about it. <laughs> uh, so that felt like too much hard work. Uh, so I thought writing about spies meant that I could make up anything I liked and people would just assume I knew what I was talking about, which does seem to have worked in as much as I get asked an awful lot whether I'm a spy or not, or, or have been a spy. And depending on my mood, I either answer this question honestly or I, or I don't. So you make it up. I'm, I'm very struck by the fact that you decided not to do lots of research about spying. That basically, that's the deal, is you did, you did no research, you did it's, none of that trying to embed yourself or anything like that. No, no, it wasn't really a, a conscious decision as such. It's just my natural laziness <laughs> disinclination to do anything like that. I'd really like you to talk a little bit more about being interested in writing about failure and boredom, because I think it's a really interesting choice. I mean, it, so much modern life, modern work in particular, involves being bored mm. and you know failure is such a kind of dirty word in in the society that we live in at the moment it's very hard you know it it's only okay if you if you're sort of saying that you're learning from failure in, mm. in order to kind of do better next time I, I wondered what sort of drew you to that I just think it's more interesting because well happiness writes white as he uh, mm -hmm. said that Larkin used to quote all the time Montanat I think came up with it originally and that seemed to me over the past few years, not so much now, but a few years ago, there was a strain in, in genre fiction which was very reliant on, on wish fulfillment. Uh, the protagonists were always very, very good at what they did. They always seemed to have a lot of money and a nice apartment. And they, you know, they drank nice wine, they had the right books and everything. And then this just seemed to me crap, really. I mean, <laughs> no, nobody lives a life like that, no. surely. And if they do, it's not very interesting. It must be a nice life to live, but it's not particularly interesting to read about. Failure is far more interesting because it brings all sorts of things to the surface. A few years ago, I remember I read a, a very interesting interview with a British character actor who um, said that his first starring role had been in a Mike Lee film, and he was, the film was all about his character. You probably all know how Mike Lee works. You know, he doesn't work from a script as such. He works with his actors to, um, to come up with a backstory for the characters they're going to be playing and scenes are improvised and a lot of material is shot out of which the film is made. And this character actor knew that um, for the first time he was going to be you know, playing the lead role in a movie. So he was quite surprised when he saw the film and he's only in about three scenes. Because Mike Lee had lied to him and told him it was all about him and it wasn't, it's about a different character. <laughs> But he got a great performance out of this character actor for the scenes that he was in because, you know, he thought this was, you know, the <laughs> he was the most main, important thought thing. This was the main person in the movie. Yeah. And that seems to me to be very true to life because we are all the heroes our own, of our own stories. We're all the protagonists of our own, our own narrative. Everybody else is kind of playing a bit part. So I was quite interested in having a bunch of characters, all of whom thought that they were the central character, that they are the the hero or the heroine um, and have them essentially bumping heads because of course they're not they're not, not doing anything particularly important but that meant that when the opportunity to do something arose they would all grab it with both hands because although they're all 
in this kind of exile situation where nothing important is going on. Every so often, some kind of opportunity will arise. And they will leap for it, even though that's a very stupid thing to do in, in many circumstances. And even though a lot of the time they're simply making a bad situation worse, they just want to be involved. They all wanted to be, you know, James Bond or whoever. But it is one of the great successes, I think, of the series that, as you say, you, you have your characters... They are. They start off each book kind of in this terrible, terrible kind of hell, kind of boredom play office, and then they get an opportunity to get out. And actually, they invariably make things worse, or they fail. You know, and yet the read is completely satisfying. I mean, it is. It, I think it's a great achievement of the books. It's one of the things that makes them both fun and also really interesting. Um, I suppose it's rather I'm, hard for you to comment on that. <laughs> Uh, I haven't really thought of it in that way. I mean, I, I plot as I go along, more or less. Mm-hmm. I kind of know where I'm going, and I certainly know where I'm starting from. But um, a lot of the time, I'm, I'm just kind of winging it um, in, in terms of creating the ins and outs of, of the plot. So their success, or otherwise, in the course of events in the novel, is um, it just kind of depends on how things how work you feel out. How you feeling? Following on for this, one of the things that I find very original about the books are their tone. Um, what I mean by this is that most spy fiction and most spy non-fiction, I, as, uh, as we mentioned earlier, I, I wrote a biography of Anthony Blunt and so uh, years ago and did a very great deal of research and a lot of reading of spy books. And a lot of, of, of stuff in this area is written with a very inbuilt and powerful sense of its own importance, its own heroics, its seriousness, the jeopardy of what's at stake. Uh, in non-fiction, pomposity is often one of the sort of key elements. Uh, and this is something I don't, I, which I find interesting, is very absent from your books. Um, you know, for me, one of the interesting things about the series is that the, the, the books puncture a lot of the expected tropes of, of spy writing. You know, as we said, it's a world of failure and boredom and small-mindedness and vanity and fallibility. And I wonder whether... It, I do think it's very interesting what you said, that sort of conjoining of, of the boringness of office work and the spy... I mean, it is a sort of fantastic union, isn't it, of, 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 of kind of current... Ter- it's like sort of call centre life mm. and grafted onto onto spy, you know, spy uh, fiction. I, I guess it is. A lot of what I do, or the reason why I'm writing this kind of book, is I'm simply trying to make a virtue out of my own limitations because I don't know, I don't know very much about anything, frankly. <laughs> and, uh, but what I do know is what it's like to work in an office. So that's why I was basing my character's sort of frames of reference within the office environment. When I started writing, it was 2008, when I started writing this series, and um, that was, you know, the banking crisis was just upon us. And from my own personal experience of working for a corporation, my feeling was that all large corporations are just dysfunctional. It's inevitable. And some of them are dysfunctional to a degree of absolute corruption, which we could see with what was going on in the banks at the time. And others are dysfunctional simply because they're run by people whose the, the levels of kind of middle management are just so, dominated by petty vanity and point scoring and personal ambition. And so I simply just grafted. drafted all that onto, onto the spy novel, not because I thought I was doing anything new, but was because what I felt I could write about, what I kind of knew about to 
to a degree. Can you think of any any other spy novels that sort of do that? The only thing there's a bit of, I thought we were talking earlier about Len Dayton and the sort of class I, of Harry Palmer. But I, I reread an early Harry Palmer yeah. not long ago, just yeah. last year, and I was quite struck, and this was written about, I think it was 63 yeah. or so underwater. Um, and I was struck by the similarities, actually. And I had read those books when I was a teenager. And, you know, it, it's it's all in there somewhere. And this is it probably, is in there. Probably but coming it's not, out. not in many of the others, I would have said. Not in anything else I sort of think of. I mean, not in Bond, obviously. But not really in yeah. Green, you know, Green and, and Le Carre. You know, they, they think they're sort of, they are sort of criticising the system. But it's very much from a kind of, you know, upper from class inside. perspective <laughs> and from inside, it uh-huh. seems to me. You know, uh, and they're very in love with the idea of its its importance as well. And they they are, you know. I I admire both those writers yeah, no, enormously. Absolutely. And I think there are a lot of, of of cadences that I borrow from the character here and there. Probably more than some of them deliberate, but some of them I, I realise on rereading that this is where they're coming from, and it's it's not intentional. When you say cadence, what, what do you mean? I by mean that? the actual prose, the, um, the 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 rhythms of the prose, really? and, and so on. Um, uh, I'm. I noticed this the other day, um, just with this one, which was not, I wasn't intentionally doing a le carré, but the first sentence is, seasoned park watchers later said that the affair really began in Fishers, and it goes on from there. And that really is quite le carré. <laughs> it was not, not intended to be, but, um, but, but when, that's when you have a, you know, such a, a, a huge example yes. of, of how to write good, successful and literate spy fiction in front of you like the character. It's impossible to avoid, um, you know, sort of sounding like him at times. I think, I think you've managed to disguise it quite well. I mean, I, I, think, I think there are moments when one sees a sort of possibly a little um, sort of almost a sort of element of pastiche, but it seems to me it's very sort of controlled. I don't think, I don't think the rest of us are sitting here thinking it sounds exactly like... The well, all. my characters fart and swear more than his. They do. Yeah. They do a lot more farting and swearing. Um, well, he sets the bar pretty low as far as that's concerned. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. There's not a lot of farting and swearing in the character. More's the pity, I suppose. Uh, another thing I, I very much like about about the books is the way. It's one of the things I like anyway about the thriller genre. Anyways, is the way that it it, it allows one to kind of foreground a whole a world. And one of the things that's particularly vivid, I think, you say, you know, you're writing about a group of people, but you're also writing very strongly about about a world. As you say, it's almost you know a corporation. Slough House and Regent's Park spring really from that first novel, very vividly and fully formed to life. And what I think is again is very interesting is you know exactly it does feel like it feels like uh, you know British intelligence is it feels it feels appallingly and plausibly credible that the is that modern intelligence is actually like a kind of badly run corporation you know as you say in Slough House with its sort of dead flies and stained carpets and Regent's Park with this shiny glass dome hub but. Again, all these sort of awful narcissistic careerists and uh, yes men and um, sociopaths. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you choose, as I say, to focus on Slough House rather than Regent's Park. Is there any bit of you that's sort of attracted to the shiny bit? Only in as much as it gives me an opportunity to write about um, the, the politics of it and the, um, the connivingness of it, because my... My characters in, in Slough House, I mean, sometimes they get called unlikable, which I disagree with, actually. No, I, I think, think they're think very likable. Uh, but they're not really conniving. I mean, they're just trying to do their best and they're trying to get back into a world that they're probably better off out of. That's yeah. the, 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 the great thing art, about right? them. I yeah. mean, Lamb is going to keep them in, in Slough House and he 
somewhere. He probably thinks it's just the best place for Thorn. him. He doesn't want anything, anything to do with uh, with Regent's Park, and um, and he kind of rejects that whole that whole side world. of the, the whole world really because he's seen how how dirty it can be, and he would far rather be in his actual squalor rather than what he sees as as moral. Tell us a bit about Diana Taverner, then, as a sort of archetype, almost, of that Um, shiny world. Well, again, I mean, she does does want to do her best, really, but she genuinely believes that she is the best person to be running the Secret Service, and she, throughout the book, goes to... The best for her, isn't it, really? No, she thinks the best... I mean, it will be the best for her, but she also thinks it's the best thing for the country that someone like her is doing this job. So she does manifest some pretty awful behaviour in order to get herself into that position. But it is fun writing about people doing awful, things. awful unpleasant, underhand things, it has to be said. Let's talk a little bit about Jackson Lamb. He's the presiding spirit of Slough House and, I suppose, the books. I was going to... I just wanted to mention, you know, he, around his most described quality of farting, there are a myriad of priceless, I think, descriptions, my favourite of which is, <laughs> I, I like a pun, so your description of his capacity for farting as being bottomless is cheap <laughs> but good. I, I, I mean, presumably you take a bit of pleasure in that. I well, mean, I, I, I think it was quoted in the Times as saying this the other week. What delights me about that is the way the language allows you to make that joke. I just think it's, <laughs> I think it's tremendous. I do enjoy puns and I do enjoy the wordplay, but it's a lot of what I put in, in Lamb's mouth when he's saying really quite unpleasant, bigoted things is just the the joy of using that language in a way that is both, you know, it's probably pretty offensive a lot of the time, but it's also funny. And, and liberated um, and, in its way. Yeah, and, and, and free. But the fact that the language, as I say, allows you to to be funny and unpleasant at the same time is, is quite delightful. How did you how did you put him together? How did he come to you? Uh, slowly is, is probably the right... And so he was never intended to be any more important a character than any of the others. Uh, I mean, in Slow Horses, the, the main character is arguably River Cartwright, yeah. the young agent who starts off. He certainly thinks he's the most important character in that book and all the books since. He hasn't quite learned his lesson yet. But he's young. He's, he's young. foolish. <laughs> yes, he's, he's managed to stay quite young, despite the fact that he's been doing this for some years now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I shade over details like, um, you know... Oh, phrenology and stuff like the that. The Simpsons. Yeah, <laughs> quite. Just think about The Simpsons. <laughs> I haven't, but I will now. What was I saying? You were talking about, I was asking you how, uh, whether oh, Jackson yeah. sprang fully yeah. formed or whether it took a while. There was a, a period when I thought he might not actually appear in the books on the page, you know, that he would simply be a malign presence in his, um, in his attic office that the others would talk about, but he would never actually appear. Uh, but... Once I started writing, I changed my mind about that. And as soon as I realised how much fun I could have with a character who doesn't appear to have any boundaries, then it became obvious that he would be there on the page. I haven't done this myself, but I think if you go through the novel... This is a job for somebody when you get home tonight. <laughs> go, go through the novels and take out all the pages on which he appears. I'm sure he's not actually in, in the books that much. But when he does appear, and this has probably increased throughout the novels, he's kind of turned up to 11 in a way that the other 
characters aren't. So he he spreads out into the margins in a way that, that they don't. Yes. But you never know what he's um, he's thinking or feeling. You just sort of see him in action, as it were. Whereas all the other characters, I write scenes from their points of view, so you know what they're going through. You know what they how they feel about it, and you know what they you know what they hope and wish for. Uh, so the other characters really have more ballast to them than than Lan himself does. But he's probably more memorable simply because he is a grotesque, and grotesques are always. The characters that, that kind People of loom in the imagination more than any others. Dickensian. Yeah. I think that's very interesting because I was just thinking, I, I've, I've always thought of him as uh, what in our house we call a Mr. Wu, uh, which is, you know, he's the character that everybody talks about, you know, and they build him up and yeah. no, you never see him. And then finally Mr. Wu arrives. And it almost doesn't matter what Mr. Wu is, right? Because he's, but actually it turns out that Jackson Lamb completely fulfills his promise. Right. But as you say, he's a... He's a presiding spirit rather than a central character. He, he often does kind of act and, um, uh, and you know, put things right or wrong. Well, he's the most he effective he's person, most effective. arguably, in yeah. all the books, on, yeah. in it from, you know, whether in Regent's Park or, or Slough House. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, on one level, you think if he'd actually, you know, get his act together and shave and shower and so on, he could actually run Regent's Park if he wanted to. But he does not have any interest in doing that. Mr. Wu was Steely Dan song. Sorry, is that where you got it from? Sorry, I'm going to have to ask my husband. Where does Mr. Wu come from? It's an Orson Welles line. It's an Orson Welles line. There okay, you go. Okay, thank you. <laughs> there we go. Mr. Wu. Orson Welles was a, a model for, for Lan. If I had a oh, that's a model, very, very good idea. If I had a model, um, Touch of Evil, you know, when he's really particularly sallow and, and oily and so on. That's Bloody some, wish I'd yeah. asked that question first, but I'm so very pleased it came out. Anyway. You decided specifically not to give him, you, you choose not to excavate him. And clearly there's, you know, I imagine there's a lot of kind of pain and, uh, what's the word, self-loathing underneath here, you know, but you have always decided to keep away from that in uh, him. Yeah, I think the self-loathing is, is pretty clear. Self-evident, yeah. And it's fairly clear there's damage there in, in the background somewhere. But I'm not interested in exploring what that is, because I think if you tinker with a with a character like that and bring backstories out into the light, it it spoils them. I think mm. we can probably all think of, of characters that that's been done. Hannibal Lecter, okay, yeah, I mean, you just don't want too much. Scene. Once you so explore true. his history, he loses any kind of uh, danger or charm. I think that's absolutely right. I was just thinking though, as you say, with certain other characters, you choose uh, to uh, you know enter their their lives and their, their minds much more. And I'm thinking particularly, I mean, the, I think the, the characters that sort of anchor us as readers to the series, the people who may, you know, who are, who are useless, but we, we, we identify them and we have come to like them. We want them not to fail and they fail again and again. I'm thinking of Louisa Guy. Yeah. I'm thinking of River and perhaps most of all Catherine Standish, who is the 50-something the ex-alcoholic who has a sort of, I think, as the books go by, a sort of battle-hardened nobility about her. She's a really appealing character. And it's, you know, somebody whose life is extraordinarily quiet, really. Somebody who, who has been sort of destroyed in so many respects by mm. life, but who's sort of held these sort of shreds of her dignity. And there's something very, very admirable about her, I think. I, and she's probably my favourite character of them all. I think mm. that she's the... The, uh, the heart and conscience of, of Slough House. But very much for those reasons. Um, there are several points in, in many of the novels where I indicate how difficult it is for an alcoholic 
simply to get to work in the morning without encountering temptation. Yeah. I mean, it's just everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And so you need a, an inner strength to to survive all that yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah. And so her life is very quiet, but it is essentially a, a, a triumphant life. Because Absolutely. Things have gone very slightly differently for her. She wouldn't be there now. At she all. would be, you know, she would be on the streets. Um, so, and she's very conscious of that. And he respects her, I think, Jackson, in his he horrible way. He has an odd way. way of showing it. Yeah, he uh, does. He's horrible to her, but you feel that of all of them, he sort of does respect. I mean, he tortures her, doesn't he? Yeah, they have a history that you know of a relationship which. Which, oddly enough, she isn't entirely aware of. He knows more about it than, than she does. And I do touch on that in this book. I say I don't go very far into Lamb's background, but there is a scene in this novel where it's just a conversation between the two of them and it goes further back into the past than I'd ever gone before with, with either of them. And then it's exploring the, the na- essentially it's exploring the nature of their relationship, but it's also bringing in other, the other things that happen. Yeah. One of the pleasures of the series, I think, is that you're able to kind of have overarching themes and also you're able to kind of reveal little bits about people through the books. It's one of the great, I think, lovely things about a, a series, you know, and, and a series that sort of moves on. So that, I imagine that was quite deliberate. You thought you'd sort of drip feed us. I'm, I'm glad I give that impression. Because <laughs> very, very little of it is, is conscious. I, you know, I put things in as, as they occur to me and trying not to be untrue to anything I've, I've written in, in the past. Mm. I don't really have a, an overall arc in mind, although with this, with this book, with Joe Country, I decided as I got to the end that I'd throw in... It's not quite a cliffhanger, but there's something happens right on the last page, and I had no idea where I was going with that. I just thought, if I end it like that, then I'll, I'll have to actually do some work next time. <laughs> so I'd have to go on. I've got to point out, you know, having made us like these characters, you are not slow to do a Games of Thrones on on and kill off major <laughs> characters. Was that a sort of early decision? Is that I noted? I think you did you not kill off a, a rather major character in your previous series? I, I refuse to answer that question. Okay, very good. <laughs> okay. It may contain a spoiler. Okay, very, um, very well, well done. Can I, I say? <laughs> I always knew that I was going to. Um, one of the points of having a, a larger cast was that I would be able to do this. I would be able to dispense with characters because it makes for a, a, a memorable reading experience. I think if you've grown to like a character over not just one novel but more than one novel, once a character has been in more than one book. You tend to think of them as being inviolable. You know, you think that this is, you know, they're, mm. they're part of the, the set, as it were. You only have to kill one person to make all other characters nervous because they never know when they're in danger, whether it is actually going to be the end for them. But I never do it lightly, and I never decide in the middle of a book, oh, I know what would liven this up. I'm going to kill somebody off in the next chapter. The death of the character is always one of the pieces of information I have when I start to write a novel, it's always going to be, this is the novel in which X is going to die. And I make very clear on, on page three, I think, of this of Joe Country, that this is a novel in which several characters meet their end. Well, you don't find out who they are until much further on in the book. With this book in particular, with Joe Country, it actually started off with, a, with an image. Normally, my imagination is triggered verbally. I mean, I'm, I'm more interested in words on the page than in any other form of... Um, input or output. Uh, but with this, I had a, an image in my mind of a snowy hillside with a, with a tree on it and somebody sitting underneath the tree. And I knew that this person was dead. And I knew 
that they were a character that I'd worked with for a long time. It appeared in, in many previous books. So the whole of the novel, plotting the novel, was a matter of creating the context in which I could allow that scene to take place. That's how, for me, a lot of plotting works. I have a kind of destination in mind and I've got a you know an idea of a theme or whatever and it's simply a matter of I always know where they start because they're always in slow house to start with and it's just simply finding a route from this starting point to the end point that I have in mind or midway point or whatever and then track away from it. With this one I found it's very important that when something like that happens and it, it comes to me quite forcefully that I do go with it. I can't, th- can't think actually I don't want to kill that character. I mean, I could have decided that. But I'm not sure what I would have done otherwise, because this is how my imagination works, and this is how the books get created. So once that was there, I had to be true to it. And also, in a way, I felt a, a moral obligation to, um, to do this, because this was, as I say, it's, it's a character that I've worked with for a long time. And it's a very privileged profession, being a writer, because it means that you can take people you've worked with for a long time, and you can kill them. Now, you're not allowed to do this in office life, trust me. <laughs> and I felt that I would be betraying all those other office workers, of whom I was one for, for many, many years, if, if I didn't take the opportunity to kill a colleague when it was presented to me on, on the plate. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't bring me any great happiness to, to do this. But on the other hand, it also allows me to, um, to bring in new characters all the time. So it refreshes the series, at least from my point of view, because I have new characters to explore new characters to, um, to write about. And I can think of many books where other novelists have done this. And you know, Take Ed McBain, for instance. Ed McBain's 87 Precinct series. There are more than 50 books in the series. Most of them I've read more than once. A lot of the time, you know, trying to remember what they're about, they, they kind of merge. But I remember the books where he kills off one of his main characters, and he does it you know, a number of times over the mm. half century or whatever he was writing those books. So it makes for a memorable experience. Not necessarily a happy one, but a memorable mm-hmm. one. I've just realised where uh, some of that nasty, dry humour comes from. <laughs> okay. Do you have a process for developing characters or do they come to you? Or do you rewrite and rewrite? Of, a bit of, I do a lot of rewriting. Yeah. But a, a bit of both. I mean, in one sense, there's a kind of some sort of cookie cutter there because if my characters are going to turn up have a new character in Slough House that means there must be an issue there that goes with them there has to be a reason why they're there so there's damage of one sort or another so I know that you know I've got that to to start with and I know I don't want to keep repeating myself so I have to think of a new kind of damage damage to to portray but I find that um, and I think this is probably common to to many um, fiction writers that the act of creativity allows you access to thoughts you didn't know you had. So as soon as I can think about, you know, a character that they're going to be, have this, you know, wrong with them and they're going to look vaguely like this and so on. But once I actually start putting them on the page and giving them thoughts in their head and feelings in their heart and words in their mouth, then that's when they start to become, that's when it can spoil. They start to become, not not real so much, but they flesh out and I, I see what kind of uh, character they're going to be on so the page. So words and almost building words up characteristics are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but all the, all the work is done in the back of your mind, really, and this kind of um, uh, creative stuff. Uh, a lot of it is going on in the, in the subconscious or whatever. And once you start doing the work, that all comes out and, and sort of finds expression in a way that you didn't know was going to happen. This happened to me with, um, with, with River Cartwright, 
uh, when I came up with his name. So this was at a very early stage in the process of uh, writing Slow Horses. And I knew that I was going to have a young man who was in Slough House for reasons, you know, that he was, he was set up in some way. Uh, I knew he was going to be called Cartwright. I didn't know what his first name was, but I knew it would have two syllables because I'm a very rhythmical writer. Rhythm matters to me, and I knew that it had to be Dudon Cartwright. It couldn't be Tom Cartwright, I mean, it had to be two syllables. And I went through every name I could think of, and, um, and some I probably shouldn't have thought of, <laughs> and none of them quite worked. And I remember very well coming up with, with River. I was working at the time, and I got the train from London into Oxford every evening, coming back from work. Do you know the line? The old line, the one from Paddington, comes over the river just before it gets into the railway station at Oxford. It's only about, if it's working properly, it's only about a minute or so between crossing the river and pulling up at the station. And being a, a trained commuter, I knew which door to be standing at to get off the train so that I was right next to the steps to be up and away out of the station straight away. So I was standing up as the train went over the river in the, in the vestibule, and I thought, river, there's a name. The only river I knew at the time was... Uh, uh, River Phoenix, who was then, you know, then long dead, but that was the only time I'd come across it being used as, as a name. But as soon as I had that, the whole of his backstory came to me, because if he's called River, he had to have a parent who was a bit flaky, because yeah. you wouldn't call you <laughs> River otherwise. Can I just check on, on this? Any, anyone got a child Two called River? Two separate occasions I've been telling this story, and, and oh somebody in the audience has turned out... To have a Seriously. Child River. Seriously. Okay. Mind you, in both cases, any I can't rivers, prove my point. I any rivers in the audience or no? Well, you're safe yeah. here. And therefore, you know, if they were had a, their immediate parent, if River's immediate parent was, you know, kind of hippie type, then you had to have some other figure in the background that had imbued him with the sense of, you know, whatever it is that made him want to, to do a life of service with, yeah. a, with the Secret Service. So that's how his grandfather mm. was invented. And therefore, I knew that he had to have been basically abandoned by his mother and brought up by his, his grandfather. And that all came to me before the train arrived at the station <laughs> in Oxford. And that's because I'd been you know, thinking about it for a long time, and it was all just waiting there to, the be, to be given, given yeah. birth. But it all, it all comes out like that in one kind of rush. That's only happened to me on two occasions that I can think of, but that one is the one that I most remember. But it's not nothing to do with, you know, sudden burst of inspiration or anything. It's, it's never doing all, it's doing all the toil beforehand and then just allowing yourself finding the access to the um, to the ideas, to the created to the creativity that is within. Usually that comes by putting words on paper. It's usually at the at the typeface. Can you call it that? At the typeface. Yeah, I think that's rather good. I like that. It usually happens at the typeface, but very occasionally it'll happen in a kind of abstract <coughs> theoretical way. Let's move more. You, you talked already about how the rhythm of words is very important to you. How you like enjoy puns. I mean, one of the another of the qualities of, of the books is their wit and their sharpness, and your very evident pleasure in words. I, I was just thinking. There's. A, I was just looking the other day at London Rules again, and there was a an exchange that I felt sort of summed up a particular kind of deadpan thing that you do. Uh, particularly well when these two agents are discussing the difference between different kinds of sort of appalling behaviour. And the line was, blowing up 42 kids in a shopping centre is murder. Waterboarding a suspected terrorist to death. That's housekeeping. And I, I mean, I, there is a, there's a lot of that. I mean, I, I, one of the things I, uh, I, there's a line also I very much like from, uh, from Catherine, we were talking about 
earlier. She says, having a cat is one small step from having two cats and to be a single woman within a syllable of 50 in possession of two cats is tantamount to declaring life over. Um, do these ping into your head or do you work at them? Are you a sort of three draft man? Oh, or? more than easily. Yeah. I mean, when I first expressed either of those things, it would have been a whole paragraph uh, eventually working its way around to making that point. And then you just take out all the other words that aren't really adding anything. Even though on the so first, second, third, that. fourth read, it looks like every word is, is necessary. Yeah, yeah. You just keep taking the words out until you have to put that. If I went through other, any of my books now, I would, you know, even, even Joe Country, I'd probably just Take be more. taking more and more words out. Yeah. But there is, you know, clearly the, the words matter. I mean, we know, you know, in genre fiction, there's often a, a big pressure to get a book out a year. Right. Uh, we both know that. And in fact, I think, you know, there are very few, very exceptional writers who can write something that's really good in a year. I mean, Lee Child is probably one of them. I always think those books are sort of better than they almost need to be. They're kind of amazing. And I notice your books, of, you know, you, you have a certain a sort of monk-like existence, I think. You, know, you, you have a partner, but she doesn't live with you and, you know, you don't have kids and you clearly work very hard and you don't have a TV. But, you know, you clearly take a great deal of care in writing and that's and words are clearly something that give you a very great deal of pleasure it's not rushing to the end of the plot by any means no it, it, it is a pleasure um, and it's how I find fulfillment I mean I would be doing this even if they weren't being published frankly I mean mm. it's, it's it's what I've I did it for a long time without being published uh, and I'm blessed with a, a publisher who I mean I, I accept what you say about genre fiction but um, John Murray don't really publish genre fiction, they just publish the fiction that they They like, publish. I know, well, so I'm, I'm, they, kudos to them. No pressure is put on me to produce um, you know, a, on a kind of yearly basis, uh, which is the, is the case with a lot of um, publishers who want yeah. their authors to, you know, bang in a book every February so it can be produced yeah, yeah, every sure. September or, or whatever. I don't have any of that kind of pressure at all. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> uh, his publisher is actually just sitting at the back. We all love you, okay? We all want to be published by you. I want to move on now to talk a little bit about, before we take some questions, about satire and social observation, which I think is another really interesting and unusual thing in the books. One of the pleasures of contemporary crime writing is how sort of capacious, how its capaciousness has come to accommodate so much in terms of writing about society and politics. And I'm thinking about people like Ian Rankin and Denise Mina, Minor and Sarah Hillary and Eva Dole and plenty of others. And your books also do that. But, as I was saying earlier, I, I think that there isn't a lot of that in spy fiction. I wondered if you started out thinking about them as a sort of vehicle for social comment or whether it just sort of evolved. Do you think the espionage thriller is a good place for, for sort of satire and social comment? I mean, yours... Probably not, on the whole. I don't, I don't think anyone should go near it with a, with a <laughs> It's something that evolved. I mean, the humour, the tone of voice in the books was something that for me, when in writing Slow Horses was different from the way I'd written before, or perhaps just a more extreme version of what I'd written before. It just seemed to me to be the appropriate way of telling this particular story I was telling, to have that kind of cynical narration going on, because of the situation that most of the characters were in. And then as things went on, and as the political landscape descended into the chaos of the, of the past decade, really, or, or however long it's been. Uh, it feels like a century, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, the, that kind of aspect of the storytelling has, has grown. I think it probably peaked in, in London Rules, which was, I 
that's my Brexit novel, yeah. really. Uh, there's probably a bit less of that in, in Joe Country. I think there'll be a bit more of it in the next one, judging by um, stuff in general going on. I feel there's a, a palpable sense of anger in the books. Is that right? I think there is. I think in London Rules there, there was. Yes, I mean, I, I think there is. I think that we've increasingly been governed by people I'm not happy about being governed by and I'm mean, covering the whole of the political landscape when I when I say yeah. that I mean yeah and, I, and there is a very real feeling of anger and I'm writing about anger a lot certainly at the moment I'm writing about angry people people who are angry about you know the state of the nation because that's what's going on that's yes. what you can see every time you read a newspaper you know there's, there's so much of it out there so it's it's feeding into the books and a lot of it I mean I yeah I feel angry about part of it but I'm generally speaking quite laid back about everything. I'm quite relaxed. I'm having a great time. You know. <laughs> the world might be coming apart at the seams, but yeah, I'm enjoying myself, so that's all right. But nevertheless, it's it's there and available as something that I want to address in in what I'm writing. So yeah. you have a lot of fun with a number of characters who might just be the tiniest bit inspired by real people. For example. Peter Judd, the Home Secretary, with a shock of fluffy blonde hair and a bicycle, uh, and uh, let me correct absolutely you. no. Oh, let sorry, me tell you there. Correct me. There is never any point at which I tell you what colour Peter Judd's hair. Oh, is. did you not? I thought there was fluffy hair. Fluffy hair. Fluffy is not a colour. That's true. Sorry, you're absolutely right. I've I've projected. Projected, yeah. And at one point, I described him as having a haystack of hair. But haystack. Look at a haystack and well, haystack what is. Straw-coloured. Straw-coloured. OK. Depends, depends on the time. Right of the on the edge there. And then there's Dennis... This is definitely what I'm telling my lawyers. Anyway. OK. Uh, very sensible. And then there's Dennis Gimble, a very angry little far-right politician who takes all the credit for the Brexit vote, but who, to whom you give a secret cross-dressing habit, which amused me tremendously. Well, so. that was an example. Oh, and a horrible uh, tabloid columnist wife. Yeah. Um, I'd actually finished. It was, it was at the publishers before somebody pointed out that there was a particular politician who did have a horrible Horrib columnist wife. Yes. I was thinking of an entirely different horrible columnist, communist. and I just brought them together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was the, the whole cross-dressing thing was like an example of what I say about when you're actually doing the writing, things happen that you weren't necessarily aware we're going to. I had the character all worked out in my head. And when I started writing the first scene in which he appears... Within two sentences of writing that, he was a cross-dresser. He, <laughs> he hadn't been. Right. Uh, it just. It just. It just came out. Like. And yeah. as soon as, because as soon as that aspect of the character came into being, it became something that I could use in the plot because it, it becomes a it's kind of blackmailable you know, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. characteristic. So um, yeah, and that was one of the things that obviously has been worked out in the in the back of my head, but I don't know about it until it comes out of my fingertips. Sound like a robot, don't I? It's the power of the subconscious. <laughs> Another thing I, I wanted to touch on is the way that in each book, Regent's Park is always at least partly to blame for what for the ensuing chaos. That actually, it's either rogue agents initially drafted in by by its members, or coups set off by Tory politicians, or a playbook for destabilising the country, which was written by MI5 and gets in, into the wrong hands. I mean, I feel that there's a certain truth to this. When I was writing a long time ago my biography of Anthony Blunt, 
one of the things I noticed was that intelligence agencies often get unstuck in peacetime because they're trying constantly to invent reasons for justifying their own existence. I, I've, I, this is something I very much like in your books. Was that something, I, I feel that must be deliberate, that it's certainly in the first five books, everything yeah. really comes out of problems that Regent's Park has created for itself. I, I keep trying to cast my head wider, but it always comes back should. to me. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. And it's not that I'm necessarily trying to make any uh, point about how the Secret Service operates. I'm simply drawing on the experience of, of corporations being dysfunctional and, you know, sort of, and also refusing to admit to error. Yeah, yeah. I remember once at the company I worked for, we'd moved premises and we all got this email saying what our new postcode was. And we were given the wrong postcode. And this led to chaos for a week. You know, nothing was working properly because we were, you know, mailing stuff out. And yeah, it was all, all going horribly wrong. And when the error was corrected, inverted commas, it went round in an email saying, we are pleased to confirm that our postcode is. And then it gave us the corrected postcode. And this notion that, you know, you can really screw something up that's got the whole company going into a huge mess for a week and then kind of pretend that this was, you know, not the fault of the person who actually sent the post around <laughs> in the first place. I, I, I kind of draw on that as being a, a parable of how I see, you know, corporations operating. Yeah. You know, they mess things up and then they pretend they haven't and then they say things like, we are pleased to confirm that, you know, everything is fine. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I think I've, I, I've, talk, I've asked too many questions and I need to throw it open, if, if we may, mm-hmm. to the audience. Does anybody have any questions? In the meantime, I was going to say, um, the other, one of the other things that interests me is, is the fact that, you know, in most espionage series, the, the stakes are, are real and high and they have world resonating consequences. In your books, the constant <coughs> implication is that actually, this is a totally solipsistic, enclosed world. And you know, a bunch of intelligence nerds sort of creating their own problems. Again, you know, that was something I slightly... I know that somebody's actually currently writing a, a book of, uh, actually supposed to be um, reviewing the effect of all that Soviet intelligence okay. over all those years and whether it made a blind bit of difference apart uh, from the atom bomb. All right, well, actually, look, we're going to start with Joseph, who's right here, and I'll repeat the question. Now, I have had slow horses on my kiddo for a very long time. Come here, come here. I haven't read it yet. I have to confess is there a relationship in because the sounds are very similar between slow house and slow horse? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Thank you. The, in the books, um, the slow house is, is called and it's up near the Barbican. It's called slow house because it might as well be in slough. It's so far removed from the heart it of the intelligence. It is the most boring, grim yeah. place in the world. And, so, and fall yeah. on exactly. So the characters get called slow horses because of the place being called slow house. Okay. In fact. I had the phrase slow horses first, so I invented slough house in order to be able to call them 
slow horses. I got the phrase slow horses from a novel written by Don Winslow, a very, very fine American thriller writer. Very good, yeah. And it's in the book called The Winter of Frankie Machine, in which he's talking about a, a gambler and explaining why he's so constantly short of money. It's because he has a peculiar fondness for slow horses. And I read that and thought, <laughs> that's it. I'm having that. Oh, yeah, that's, that's great. And I, um, I, I got to meet Don Winslow. Last, I've often told that story at public events, but I actually met Don Winslow last year. He's a legendary figure in the uh, Terrific thrillers. writer. Terrific writer. Very rarely does anything public, but he was in the UK last year, and I met him very briefly, and I, and I told him that, and I was very pleased to be able to do so. And he was a lovely man. <laughs> Great writer. Hi, Miranda. Hi, Mick. Hi. Uh, everyone hear me all right? Yeah. Um, so, Mick, I'm a bookseller, and I've... Uh, driven other booksellers mad with my lamb fandom for quite some time um and i find uh, the series incredibly fun to recommend um for various reasons um it's very funny it's surprisingly emotionally attached well i get attached surprisingly emotionally as i went on but the thing that i always refer to is the fact that it does feel like it's plotted like clockwork mm. um which goes against what you said when you you feel like you're winging it as you write so I was wondering, how do you find the process once you've actually written this stuff? Like you say, you have a, a very vague end point that you want to get to. Do you find the editing and the streamlining quite laborious for that? Because by the end, it does feel very airtight. Uh, I wouldn't call it laborious because I enjoy doing it. So it doesn't feel like labor. So, but I do spend a long time doing it. And um, in Joe Country in particular, there are several chapters where I, I had to delete a, essentially a whole whole chapter and go back because I'd gone along the wrong track. If I'd had a clearer idea of how the plot was going to work, then, it, then I'd have a lot less writing to do. Uh, but that's just how the process seems to work with me, and I, I don't worry about it. I'm never in a particular hurry to finish a book, frankly, because if I do, I'll just have to start another one. And that's, <laughs> that's always a very daunting prospect, you know, starting a novel. Whereas when you're in the middle of one, you, you know, it's, it's fine, more or less, you know, you can just... You know what you're doing tomorrow, essentially, so that's, that's good. But yes, it does require a lot of second thoughts and uh, dispensing with scenes uh, because they know... I mean, I always take the good bits out, obviously. If there are any jokes that I like, I'll just use them in a different context. Characters going places, I suddenly realise they shouldn't be there and, and that sort of thing. So, kind of laborious, but it's just how the process seems to work for me. I'm a big fan. Um, terrific we've, we've met before. We've met we? before, yeah. yeah. And I think you're really the, the successor to Len in the, in the spy-fi world. I mean, it's a tremendous baton to pass on. Bits of Le Carre, yes, when he's being anti-establishment. But trying to find someone with the same voice as you is very hard. Perhaps the early John Gardner when he was spoofing spies in Boise Oaks. Mm -hmm. But what about Ian Banks? Not really a thriller writer, two or three, complicity, transition, stone mouth really with a left, quite a left-wing mm. voice and anti-establishment. What, what do you think about that comparison? I'm flattered. I mean, I was a huge admirer of Ian Banks. I, I love his books. I guess because he does have... He was a very witty writer, and I find that um, the styles that are... It's easiest to be um, unconsciously start imitating are... You have to have a very strong style, I think. But the comedic writers are the ones who... Influence. Uh, can, can, if I've been reading Ian Banks, if I've been reading Kingsley Amis, if I've been reading um, Christopher Brookmeyer, gr a great um, crime writer, I do find that I might start my sentences might start echoing the kind of sentences that they're. When that happens, I try to 
to delete them and, 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 and uh, rise above it. But Banks would be, certainly be one of those writers. I thought he was a, a great writer, a huge loss. I read his last novel, and The Quarry, just a few months ago. I've had it on my shelf since, um, since the month he died, and I hadn't wanted to read it because it felt like, um, it felt like saying goodbye to him. He's the only writer I can think of who had started. I'd read his first novel when it came out, and I had read everything he'd written ever since. He's the only novelist whom I've had a really sort of long-standing relationship with who is no longer with us, and that, that mattered a great deal to me. And it took me a long time to, to read that book because it, was, it did feel like saying goodbye. I never met him. Uh, you know, it was purely a, a reader-author relationship, but it was a very deep one. Yeah. Well, I think I'm right to say, am I, that your books didn't find their audience immediately in publication, the first one or two anyway. I mean, is that right? And if so, what do you think sort of tipped the balance? Now they seem to have found a very large audience. Uh, you're absolutely right. They didn't find an audience um, straight away. They wouldn't have found an audience yet if it hadn't been for uh, the man sitting to your, uh, to your right. I think every author needs a moment, at least one moment, of luck. You can have everything else that a writer requires, but if you don't get lucky, then your books aren't going to to reach the audience that they deserve, or you know, reach an audience they don't deserve, perhaps. But nevertheless, get out there. And I was lucky enough to be um, to be, have one of my books found. It was Slow Horses uh, by my publisher, uh, John Murray, when I was being published by an American press, and that changed things. And that wasn't an overnight event either. I mean, an awful lot of effort and several reissues went into getting readership behind these novels. So it requires something far beyond what any individual author has to, to have a, a success. And finding the right publisher is a, is a huge part of that process. So, yeah, it was luck. And Mark's and, hugely, and, hugely astute and Mark Richards, choice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of, of buying the book. <laughs> well, um, we have sadly finished the, our hour. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Thank you so for much for, uh, for answering questions. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.